All right, sisters and brothers, we are continuing in our look at the book of Acts, and I want to warn you that today's text is a little bit long, okay? So get comfortable, and then get ready to listen to this text. You will remember that last week, uh, Pentecost, we, we celebrated Pentecost, and so the coming of the Holy Spirit, and there were some there who accused them of being drunk, and that's what we talked about last week, is whether or not we would ever, for, um, for a good and Christ centered reason be accused of having been intoxicated? Are we doing things that are crazy enough, radical enough for Jesus Christ that some might wonder whether or not we are sober? And that's where we ended last Sunday. And so we look today at verse 14 in chapter 2. Peter, responding to the onlookers of Pentecost, says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. And you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you this morning out of thanks, out of gratitude. We thank you. We thank you for the ways in which you have been at work in our lives and in this body of faith. We pray, Lord, that in this time that you would speak to us, that we might hear your word, that your spirit might be upon each and every one gathered here. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So you may be surprised to know that I understand that it can be really difficult to listen to someone preach for 15 or 20 or 30 minutes. I, I, I get it, right? Even as someone who preaches a fair amount, I know that sometimes it can be really hard to pay attention. In fact, I, I notice at times when I'm not preaching and I'm listening to someone else, I mean, never Scott or John, but somebody else who might be preaching, uh, in those moments, it is easy, of course, for my own mind to begin to wander, right? To begin to question things or to begin to wonder, you know, will there still be good donuts by the time this is over? Or, or to be easily distracted by birds hitting windows. You know, those, not the any of you would ever be guilty of that, but those kinds of things. I, I get that sometimes listening to a sermon can be difficult. And if listening to a sermon is difficult there in the flesh, then I can imagine that listening to someone read a sermon, like I just did reading Peter's sermon, that that can also be fairly difficult to really pay attention. And if listening to someone read a sermon is difficult, then listening to someone read a sermon that was preached over 2,000 years ago, my guess is, is even more difficult. And if reading or listening to someone read someone else's sermon 2,000 years ago is difficult, then listening to someone reading a sermon that was preached 2,000 years ago in a massively different context like the Middle East and to a very different audience like a Jewish people, then that has to be even more difficult. Right? Which would explain oftentimes some of the glazed looks in your eyes as I'm beginning to kind of read over the scripture, even though I had warned you. I get 
that trying to understand what chapter 2, verses 14 through 41 is, can be a little bit difficult, especially in a, in a time when our attention deficit or our attention deficit is so great anyways, right? It doesn't necessarily captivate us. In fact, I consider just skipping over this particular passage, right? We're not going to go through all of Acts. We can't. It would have been easy for me to have done that, even easier for me to have included it, but just have John or Scott preach it. It would have been easy to have done that. But as I thought about this passage more, and as I thought about our theme, right, the theme of being a witness and reflecting Jesus in our world, it became somewhat clear to me that this passage really does have something critically important for us to hear. And in thinking about how do I help this sermon that Peter preached 2,000 years ago be more contemporary today, I kept coming up with a television show that Megan and I used to watch. Now, I'm somewhat reticent of telling you that we used to watch this show because there's been some criticism, especially since it's kind of gone off the air. It's not on air anymore. But, but, but a few years ago, we, we, we used to be fairly religious watchers uh, of the show The Biggest Loser. Don't act like you didn't like it, okay? So the biggest loser, you may recall, they had people who would go and, and, and they would lose like enormous amounts of weight, right? Much too quickly as has been proven, okay? But it was still pretty neat to watch, right? I mean, it was amazing how much weight these people lost. And, and at the very end of the show, uh, they would all go up on the scale, right? And they'd go up on a scale, and, they'd, and all of a sudden, they, you know, each person would stand up there, and the, the, the numbers would just start bouncing around, you know, 290, 310, you know, and, and they'd just kind of bounce around until finally it hit the number where they were, right? But of course, it wasn't just a visual. They also had an auditory sound. There was this beep. It was a beep, 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 you know, and then all of a sudden they'd be like, beep, you know, and there it was, right? You guys are acting like you never watched this. So then, until the very last one, right, the most critical way in when they would see, right, because there were always kind of teams against one another to see who could lose the most. So on the very last one, it'd be like, beep, 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 commercial, Right? And you knew that you couldn't watch it then, right? Now, this was years ago. This was this, this, this com- part of the conversation is for people my generation and older. This was when you actually had commercials, right? And so you had to watch commercials. So you knew you had to wait. And so what did you do uh, while you were waiting during commercials? What would you do? Everything, right? You'd go, get, you'd, go, you'd go to the bathroom. You'd find snacks. Maybe you'd brush your teeth. You'd put on your pajamas. you let the dog out. you do all those kinds of things, right? But before you left the room, right, what you would always do, what I would do, right? You would say, you'd say, tell me when it comes back on, right? Yeah, you remember that, right? So you guys are older. You know this. And so then we, 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 you'd, you'd run out and you'd start doing everything, right? But if you were like me, you didn't necessarily trust that your wife was going to tell you. And so you'd keep saying, is it back on? Is it on yet? Right? And you kept kind of saying that. But, you know, and she'd be like, no, not yet. And so you keep kind of going. But at the same time that you were doing kind of these things, you would also, if you were watching The Biggest Loser, you would also be listening. And what were you listening for? You were listening for the beeps. Right? Because you knew, if your wife had forgotten to tell you, you knew that when those beeps came on, it meant that the commercials were over, and that the show was about to be finished, and you wanted to make sure you were there. The waiting had finally ended. I hope you see the connection. 
if you amplify that and an inordinate amount of times, this, I think, is what we see happening in this particular passage. Here's, here's what I mean. All had gathered, many of the Jewish people had gathered in Jerusalem for this great festival. People from everywhere, we were told last week, they had gathered. And what were good Jewish people always waiting for? What were they always waiting for and hoping for and expecting? The Messiah. That's exactly right. They were always waiting. They were looking for signs of the Messiah, right? And, and, and John has talked about in a couple of his sermons about the fact that, that, that the boys, when they were very young, they were already beginning to learn and to memorize all of what we know as the Old Testament, right? So they would read the Psalms. They would read the prophets like Joel. They would read all of those things that would tell them, when you see these things happening, right, when you hear these are good. When you hear these beep, beep, then you know that the show is about to begin. Things are finally going to start happening. The Messiah has finally come. And you see all of this sermon that, that Peter is preaching, Peter is the guy on the sofa saying, it's on. It's back on and all of a sudden this is exactly what Peter is doing in his sermon if you could pay attention to what he was saying he keeps coming up with psalms and and things about David and prophet of Joel those are individual beeps that let the people know who had gathered that something exciting was about to begin. That rather than having to continue to wait and anticipate that the Messiah had actually arrived. And so they gather around listening to what Peter is saying. And you can almost, you can kind of get a sense of how they begin to kind of listen more and are attentive, even just in some verbiage. At the very beginning of the sermon, Peter says, fellow, uh, fellow Judeans. And, and, and so, you know, that's, you know, okay, fellow Judeans is a little formal. But then by verse 29, when he looks at them, he, he begins to say more of, of kind of, or my brothers, or, or those who are, you know, closer to me, that's more intimate, actually. He's he begins to, and you can always tell, I want you to know this, you can tell when somebody is into a sermon and listening or not. Okay, just remember, okay? I know that, right? And as a preacher, you know. And so finally, then you see that intimacy. And then after having heard the beeps and after having heard what Peter said, they are paying with rapt attention, right? And so till the end where they say to them, basically, brothers or those who are close to us, those who have gathered around, the outsiders, they no longer want to be outsiders, we are told. And they say, what then must we do? If these beeps are true, and if it really is on, what must we do? And Peter says to them, repent, be baptized, and allow your sins to be forgiven. Repent. Now, repent is not necessarily something that sells all that well today. 
In fact, most often when we hear the word repent, our minds go to places that aren't necessarily great places, right? Maybe, uh, maybe when you hear the word repent, if you're like me, you think about someone with a cardboard sign that has repent written on it and a, and a bullhorn maybe on a street corner or after the Indy 500. That should really work. And, and, and so there they are, and they're kind of, you know, screaming out that you need to repent and that our ways are evil, right? I'm not all that comfortable even with the word repent because it always brings me back again, and I won't tell any more stories about my childhood, today, but it always brings me back to kind of thinking about my childhood and the fear that would always come, you know, to my mind whenever I would hear people talk about repent. Repent is not a word. It's not a feel-good word by and large. It's not something we, we want to come in and hear usually. It doesn't make us feel much better about ourselves, you wouldn't think. We don't, we, don't, we don't talk about what Peter says about repenting, and we certainly don't think that it would be very effective. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a quote. It's a quote not preached by any pastor on the street corner, certainly no fundamentalist. It's by uh, Garrison Keillor, who says this. He says, I've heard a lot of sermons in the past 10 years that make me want to get up and walk out. They're secular, psychological, self-help sermons, friendly, but of no use. They didn't make you want to straighten up. They didn't give you anything hard. At some point, and in some way, a sermon has to direct people toward the death of Christ and to the campaign God has waged over the centuries to get our attention. This is Garrison Keillor. And what he's saying basically is, If you are listening to sermons, or if you are a part of a church who never wants to talk about your wayward ways, then you may want to seriously consider walking out, as he says. Now, again, that strikes perhaps, at least initially, most of us as a bit odd. I mean, who wants to come to some place voluntarily in order to be told that you are going somewhat wayward? Most of us aren't exactly overly keen on that, right? Most of us, right, perhaps we would think you just want to gloss things over. We just want to come to a place and spend an hour where we're told that, that, that we're pretty good people, that you're doing okay. Don't worry about it, you know. Things are going okay. Things in your life are all right. You're going to make it. You've got this. And, and to be sure, we, we do try to cultivate a place where you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have been created by God, that you are loved by God. However, Most of us also know ourselves pretty well. And truth be told, most of us know that if all we ever hear is just how great we are, that at some point, that will begin to ring a bit hollow. Truth be told, The only way, really, for us to move forward and to grow as people and to grow in our faith is not by denying our sin or denying our shortfalls or denying our weaknesses, but instead by having the courage to actually face them head on. 
Again, something else from, again, not a street preacher. You may not know this woman, Barbara Brown Taylor, but she is, again, no kind of, you know, no, she's not going to be there at the IMS after the Indy 500 preaching about you. But here's what she says. Barbara Brown Taylor says this. She says, we can't quit our sins if we aren't allowed to even talk about them. It's no help to stop talking about sin. We just keep doing that. We can't quit our sins if we aren't allowed to even talk about them. When I think about what it means for us to be a witness, and when I think about what it means for us to reflect the image of Jesus in our world, it it seems to me, surprisingly enough, that actually a call to repentance can be a remarkable gift to people. Because it's saying you no longer have to hide or run away. The truth be told, of course, that most of us, or many of us, many in our society, we struggle with really facing these things. Sometimes whenever we have the space to be introspective and to really reflect on our own lives, what we do instead is we turn the television on. Or maybe in those moments when we begin to think back on our past, it begins to become too difficult, and so we take yet one more drink. Or maybe when we're feeling insecure about our own selves and our own shortfalls, maybe we decide to purchase yet one more thing. And what we don't fully understand is that we simply cannot move forward in our own weaknesses or our own sins by being distracted from them or by ignoring them. Rather, only in a a physical act of repentance or confession. That's why we... We create spaces in our worship service from time to time for us to be really honest about that. As I say, probably every time we do that, when else do you have space to really be able to be open and honest, not just about the things that are going great in your life, right? Not just about your kind of little Facebook posts, but about things that are really happening and your struggles, In fact, we talked about this just last July, just two months ago. Uh, You may recall, if you were here in July, that we... Uh, that, that we actually wrote down some of those things. We called them chains, right? They were, they were chains, and we even said that sometimes those chains are, are velvety. They're almost comfortable, really. And then as an act of kind of a, a forward act, we, we brought them down and we put them into a basket, right? As a way of just saying, of just admitting the fact and admitting to others, right, that we have struggles. Now, all those confessions, they were put in a basket. Sometimes when you do these things, you burn them. Sometimes you shred them. This time, they were underneath my desk. And I didn't look at them until this week. They didn't have names on them or anything. And it was very intriguing I, 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 to, to sit there and to read the things that we struggle with. It felt kind of odd. It, it, 
And the reason why, of course, it felt a little bit odd is because it is pretty rare that we talk about those things with any great honesty with anyone else. We don't tend to talk about sin or shortfalls all that much. Now, that's not completely true, actually. We, we do talk a lot about people's sins and shortfalls, but it's always others, right, which are abundantly clear to us. I don't know why it's not clear to them. And so to spend some time and to be able to kind of see pride, which kept coming up again and again, the sin of pride, which I think in some ways is very much connected to the, probably the, the, the second leader, which was uh, comparing our lives to others. And that sense of always kind of comparing how we're doing, you know, with, with what everyone else did. And, and, and if we feel like we're doing a little bit better than everyone else, then we feel kind of good. But in those moments, which are fairly abundant for most of us, at least for me, when you feel like you're not quite doing as well, and in those moments when you begin to feel bad about yourself, and you forget, of course, the sin is realizing we're not in competition with one another. The sin of, of unforgiveness. It, it was kind of interesting, actually, to, to see how many people wrote that they struggle with forgiving people, especially their parents. The sin of kind of, you know, of, of, of I mean, the typical ones that you might think, sins of gluttony, sins of, sins of lust, sins of impatience. But what I discovered, of course, is in the midst of looking over these is I discovered how much more freedom all of a sudden I had to begin to share my own sins. Now, I didn't write this down and give it to anybody else, but all of a sudden it opened kind of a door, if you will. In fact, when we talked about this in July, we talked about that very fact that, that I'd been in a kind of a smaller group where all of a sudden someone finally decided to fess up to something. And as soon as he did, all of a sudden all of us began to confess right? It opened the door. It was this strange gift, right? And this is the gift, it seems to me, that the community has, which is to go first. The community of faith has a great gift to the world outside, which is for us to begin to confess first and foremost. Think about, who is it that preached this sermon? He is a professional repenter. Because Peter was always doing things wrong, right? He didn't have enough faith, right? He, 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 told, you know, he told Jesus, oh, you're not really going to die. He denied Jesus three times. He ran away from Jesus when he was in greatest need, right? Peter knows of what he speaks. And it seems to me, my guess is a part of the reason why his sermon was so effective is because they could tell the people there that this guy knew what he was talking about when he said repent. Or even Paul, right? Paul, who's never afraid to kind of point out these are the things that we need to do. Paul even said that I am, as he said, I am the chief of sinners. John Calvin said that the judgment begins in the house of God. In other words, confession begins right here. But... It is also incredibly important for us to know and to understand 
that a part of the reason why we are able to confess is because throughout Scripture, including in this passage, almost every time when we are told to repent, there is always then the assurance that we will be forgiven. Right? What does Peter say? Repent, right? And your sins will be forgiven. Again and again and again, we are told that when we confess, we can be assured that we will be forgiven. First John has this great, it's one of my favorite passages. It says, if we have no sin, or if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not within us. I love that first and foremost because you always know you're not deceiving anyone else, right? If you say you have no sin or no shortfall, just tell your spouse or your best friend and they will tell you what some of your shortfalls are, right? But it goes on to say, if we confess our sin, then God who is faithful and just will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I oftentimes think that a part of the reason why we struggle with really being honest about our sin is because we struggle with really believing it, right? I have sat down with person after person after person who has said to me, well, I struggle with this. I don't really think that God is going to forgive me for this. I want to believe it, but I don't really believe it. And in many ways, it reminds me of what we said about the witness two years, two weeks ago, where Jesus said, you will be my witness. And we always think that Jesus must be talking about somebody else. And I want you to know that when Jesus says, if you confess your sins, God who is faithful and just, or when John says, will, will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, I want you to know he is talking about you. Right? Not the person beside you who you think, well, that person probably doesn't have nearly as many sins as I do. Look how nice they look. They look all dressed up. They look great. No, no, no. That person, trust me, that person's got stuff. And, right? and, and not the person, well, maybe he's talking about this person over here, the person who, you know, because I kind of keep struggling with the same thing again and again. No, no, no. Jesus means you. And so one of the things, as we were talking about this, this, uh, this past week, as we were kind of wrestling with what exactly we want to do this morning, one of the things that we want to do is we want to create, just for a couple of minutes, we want to create some space. Some space for confession and for you in your own heart. You're not going to write anything down. But then today we also want to have space for you to be told face to face, to be reminded that you are forgiven. And in order to do that, what we also want to do is we want to be able to have you come down and much like the waters are a reminder of cleansing, to just put your fingers into the water of one of these bowls that will be set up just like when we do intinction and to just kind of feel that water. You don't need to wash your hands in it. You don't need to pour it over your body. We, it, this is symbolic. But I want you to be able to come down and I want you to just feel the waters as a tangible way because I know how much we struggle with genuinely believing that Jesus can forgive even me and even you. See, I think that repentance is a gift because it means we no longer have to hide. Again, one of the confessions that came up with great regularity was this. The, 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 the sin of trying to make everybody else think that our lives are perfect. It's exhausting to try to show others that your life is perfect, is it not? 
we'll be here until noon. It is exhausting. It is exhausting in our area to try to prove to everyone that our lives are perfect and that we have it all together. Is it not? You're ready to go home. That's right. We offer a gift. But we can only offer that gift when we are willing to go first. Because if we are only telling people to repent without our repentance, then we are giving them a yoke around their necks, not a gift. And we are able to repent because we have the assuredness that we will be forgiven. Let us pray. Eternal God, our judge and redeemer, we confess that we have tried to hide from you, for we have done wrong. We have lived for ourselves and apart from you. We have turned from our neighbors and refused to bear the burdens of others. We have ignored oftentimes the pain of the world. We have passed by the hungry, the poor, and the oppressed. Lord, in those moments when we lay our heads down on our pillows or go on a long drive, perhaps those are the only moments when we face the reality, Lord, of those things that we do well and of those things where we come short. So we have a moment now, Lord. May the Spirit open up our minds and our eyes to those places where we need your forgiveness. In your great mercy, forgive our sins and free us from selfishness, that we may choose your will and obey your commandments. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.